Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Matt, we're doing this just a little different tonight, aren't we? We are, and and pursuant to that difference, uh, I'm going to (laughs) ask if you can see if my uh, audio is recording from the right thing, because I'm now paranoid that it isn't. So where where Uh, do I look at that on these settings? I'm not even going to redo the intro yet, Matt. We're just going to, I'm going to splice in that first few seconds of like super awkward technical jargon crap that we were trying to figure out. And uh, we'll just let everyone imagine what kind of troubleshooting process we just went through to try and get your mic sounding right. Uh-huh. No, it was great. Um, and, and they missed a lot of really fun behind the scenes stuff. But, uh, you know, I think we'll just leave that between the three of us. I think that that's uh, that's the correct thing to do. And of course, when you say between the three of us, you mean between you and me and our guest for the evening. Is that correct? I, I mean, that would. Yes, it's not me, myself and I. So there's definitely a third party within this uh, chat that has yet to be introduced. Ladies and gentlemen, I am happy to bring back onto the show for his first appearance in season nine of this podcast. Max Nichols of Bungie. Whom I am co-recording with, or co, he and I are recording co-located tonight. We are in the same physical location um, with Matt having to dial in from across the country. So, uh, yeah, turnabout's fair play on that one, Matt. Max, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Uh, it's nice to have you here at my lovely home. Uh, <laughs> I actually haven't really had anyone else even see this office really in about the year I've lived here, so. Well, I'm happy that I could. Uh, I'm I'm very grateful to uh, you know you and your lovely wife uh, for having me out tonight. Um, it was uh, very fun to have some dinner with y'all and to kind of uh, be able to see your home. It's a very very beautiful home. Um, the Pacific Northwest is just freaking gorgeous, and uh, you you know you're kind of out of out of the city just a little bit, and the scenery is fantastic. So um, this has honestly been a real treat. But uh, what's the most fun is just getting to do this in person for the first time ever. Um, I'm glad that we actually. Made managed to like line this up so that it was going to work this way you know I, yeah no it's cool to get to see see the process i've uh i've never really known what your setup was like uh <laughs> how you could talk without echoes and it's, i'm learning a lot tonight uh the trial and error to get us to this point was immense um, look n- no one be confused there is nothing even semi-professional about the way that we conduct this <laughs> business we just kind of bought some stuff on amazon and we got very lucky that it worked out and we haven't had to buy anything else yet so if we can do it you can do it too go make Ex- a podcast hey except for the headphone splitter let's not forget the headphone splitter <laughs> notoriously that's because, that's because you're incompetent about buying useful technology <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> and, and when you say that, you are, of course, referring to the replacement headphone splitter that I got, which had uh, one in and one out port instead of two in ports, right? Exactly. Yes, that is cool. <laughs> exactly what I am referring to. Yeah, yeah. Cool. What? That's not a splitter at all. It's no, not it's splitter, not. <laughs> it looks deceivingly like a splitter. Like it, 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 it really looked like that's what we that's what we wanted and that's what we needed to get. But um, alas, <laughs> it was not. So here we are on our third uh, headphone splitter like device. But we got there in the end. Um, Man, I, this is this is weird, Matt. I mean, we don't uh, we don't record remote from one another all that often, um, especially these days. So uh, this is a, this is kind of a rare treat. You know, I'm enjoying it. Well, I'm glad I am enjoying sitting on my couch in my own apartment and, uh, you know, been just chilling. The, the vibe is immaculate right now because it's curated by me, not by you. So it makes <laughs> me happy. So, I'm sorry yeah, that I, I can get on board with it. I'm sorry that my vibe is not uh, custom tailored to your specific needs on a weekly basis. <laughs> um, what are you drinking tonight, Matt? Uh, currently, I'm drinking a whiskey Coke because your boy needs some caffeine. Been having uh, 5.30 a.m. wake up calls and then 12 hour days in the D.C. Uh, for the last couple of days and for the next couple of days as we go through a really high volume period with one of our clients that I'm helping out with. So um, I am tired. So caffeine is on the menu and it is 9.30 at night and I am going to be very tired by the time we're done. Gotcha. Um, I'm drinking a uh, a uh, I'm an um, an imperial IPA. Uh, so Max ran into the grocery store on our way home from the office, and uh, he asked me if I wanted anything, and I just said, uh, you know, I'd love a six pack. Um, forgetting briefly that you, Max, are not a, a glutensman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is is Max a glutens freeman? It's true. Yeah, a glutens freemason. <laughs> I must have missed that uh, sequel to National Treasure. Um, I don't. I don't remember that one. Um, yeah. um, anyway, and so uh, he's like, "I don't really know beer." I was like, I "Tell you what, um, an IPA with a fun-looking package is probably gonna gonna do us pretty good here." Um, well, that's how you buy all of your alcohol is based on the packaging. It's and and I'm still going with it. So, you know, my success rate is pretty high, uh, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, so this is a this is a rogue colossal clawed imperial pale ale. And it's got a wonderful illustration of a what I believe to be a kraken on the front of it. So um, mission accomplished on the cool packaging uh, beer purchase, Max. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah. well done, Max. Impeccable taste. Uh, of course, we're not here to talk about beer packaging or really anything else. What we're here to talk about is Zelda, and we played another chapter of Zelda this week, didn't we, Matt? Uh, we we did. Yes, one could call it a chapter of Zelda. Yes, and would you I would I would call it a chapter okay. of Zelda. I am <laughs> one. Yes, I would call it a chapter of Zelda. We which we did cool. play. I'm glad you're not starting off this uh, entire episode by refuting the entire premise of, of the show and what we're playing for the show. Uh, that would have been really hard to work around from like a podcast hosting standpoint. Um, of course, we yeah, would, are, would have put us in a hole early on. It really would have. So, of course, we're talking today about Phantom Hourglass Chapter 2. Um, had a bit more time to get into this game and kind of figure out uh, what it's about, what its um, what its loop is, um, what the 
um, I guess the, you know, how we're going to be spending our time in this version of, uh, the great sea. Um, and definitely very excited to talk about it. Um, I say that we just go ahead and get the housekeeping out of the way real quick here, uh, and then launch into a quick, um, catch up with Max about his history with this game and then do sacred realms rundown. How's that sound, Matt? Let's go ahead and do it. All righty. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacred realms pod to get access to our discord channel listener mail vote on what game we play next and much more additionally one of the benefits that all master sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show those legendary individuals are Tom, Gavin, Stephanie, Deck Officer, Billy, Connor, Rachel, Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout 907, Kelso, Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Il Maestro himself, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. our guest for the evening, my host for the evening, Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most legendary of individuals. And uh, I would uh, I would sail a, a dinky boat through uh, an evil cloud of fog with any of them any day of the week. How's that, Matt? Well... The dinky boat part doesn't really do it for me, but sure, we'll we'll, I mean, we'll go with it. We're yeah. in the Pacific Northwest, so dinky boat, evil cloud of fog pretty much describes it. Well, there you go. <laughs> See? <laughs> See, what you didn't understand at the time, Matt, is that I was just being thematically appropriate to my current uh, uh, geographical okay. location, right? Okay. It was, okay. It, was a, it was a big brain play, and you didn't even realize it. Well, I'm very proud of you for your big brain play, Lyndon. Thank you. Well done. Uh, Kudos from you or, or what I do this for. Um, well, but without, you don't do it very well very often because you don't get those a lot. No, I'm terrible. I'm awful at it. But without further ado, let's talk about what we played. Uh, we do that, of course, in the Sacred Realms Rundown, six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. And today we're covering Phantom Hourglass Chapter 2. Before we get into Part 1 of the Sacred Realms Rundown, Max, I want to catch up with you for a second. Um, if you could do the thing that we do every time you lead off into a new game with us, just kind of give us, uh, your history with Phantom Hourglass, um, how you have, uh, esteemed it in your mind up until your most recent playthrough of it. Like, where does it kind of live in your memory in terms of all the Zelda games together? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this game came out in 2007, uh, but my history with it actually stretches back to 2006, when I was 18, I got to go to E3 2006, where I played Phantom Hourglass and Twilight Princess before their release. The one and only time I ever went to E3. Um, and I, I actually, prior to this episode, I went to the old Zelda fan site I used to you know, help run and write for. And I read my impressions of the game from all those years ago, uh, however long ago that was. Um, 
And uh, <laughs> it was horrible, horrible to read because I was a horrendous writer at the time. But uh, I found that my opinions are pretty similar now as they were then. Um, I really didn't esteem it very highly. I left that E3 with a lot of complaints with the touchscreen controls and, you know, what I thought was scathing criticisms of how my hand was in the way of the screen. And, you know, it was kind of just chunky writing when I write it now, but <laughs> the sentiment is, is pretty much the same for me these days. Um, and then of course I played it when it actually released, uh, in my memory, I thought that I had only played like a third of the game and then dropped it. But when I booted it up to replay it, I had a save game from the end of the game. So I guess I beat the game and I just don't remember <laughs> any of it. Um, which like is just, an, which is just <laughs> that, like, that's a really, not a very good sign. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was clearly very memorable for you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, that's kind of my personal history was that like, I really, um, uh, I disliked the touchscreen controls. I disliked how handholdy it was at the time. It was kind of like, the start of that period of time in Zelda's history, that's, you know, Phantom Hourglass, Spirit Tracks, and Skyward Sword, where I kind of just didn't like the series very much anymore. Um, and this one, you know, had a lot of those those design trends that I disliked in that time period, which was, you know, very linear, very, they were very careful about not letting players make mistakes. Um, you know, they were super intent on you know, making sure it wasn't really possible to get lost and you always knew where to go and you weren't going to miss things you needed to know about, um, which was kind of just the whole trend I wasn't a fan of in the Zelda series at that time period. Um, where it's like you walk into a room and the camera pans over to show you the solution to the puzzle. Yep. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's lots of lines of tutorials every place where there could be a tutorial. Uh, and, you know, there's there's a bunch of like quotes from this time period where they're like, you know, they'll talk about how they need to make sure everyone can play the game. And, um, you know, they didn't want to they didn't they hated the idea of a player getting stuck and quitting. And so, like, they were super careful about this stuff in that period of time um, to to a point of overcorrection, I personally feel. Uh, but, you know, that was years ago. Right. So I came to this game now, having not played it since then, and I, I was determined to give it another try. Right. Like I. I was 18 then. Now I have 13 years of experience as a game designer plus college and stuff. So like I'm a very different person than I was then and much better able to, um, you know, evaluate a game that may not have been for me. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the, the eyes I'm trying to look at it through now, which I feel like you uh, actually, in fairness, did a lot of in our season covering Skyward Sword. Right. One of the three games that you just mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like that was we, we had a lot of conversations on the episodes that you were on about, like, uh, you know, even though some of these were decisions that you bounced off of um, earlier in life, you know, uh, you had kind of um, you, you were reevaluating some of them in a more positive light. Um, and then, you know, in addition, we're able to kind of deconstruct the reason that some of the changes they had made to the HD version of that game were working as well as they were to address certain complaints. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I have a much higher, uh, you know, opinion of Skyward Sword now than I did in 2011 or whatever it was when it came out. Uh, I think the historical context of this game is pretty interesting too, Phantom Hourglass, that is, because 
you know, it, it came out in 2007 and the game industry and gaming markets were super different back then. Um, because the, the Wii came out in late 2006, the iPhone, the first iPhone was, I think 2005. So like smartphones were new, um, controlling a game this way through a touchscreen was like not really a thing that had been explored uh, almost anywhere outside of the DS. Yeah. Um, the DS as a platform at this time was, was mega, right? I mean, it was selling like hotcakes. Yeah. I think I, I, I'm honestly forgetting the timeline of like DS versus three DS and when they all came out and stuff. But, but yeah, I do think this was roughly the height or the beginning of the height of the DS's massive sales. Um, but kind of this thing that was happening in the game industry at that period was a huge, huge, huge increase in the players that they were targeting with games. Um, you know, the Wii came out and it sold incredibly well compared to all past consoles at that point in time. Um, and it did so by attracting whole new audiences. And internally at Nintendo, they were like really interested in a like looking into questions of like, how do we design our games so that people who don't currently play our games can enjoy them? Um, that was kind of like a core philosophical thing that Nintendo was grappling with all throughout their company. Um, so this falls in the same trends as the, as like we, the Wii and Wii sports and, you know, the Wii be selling well at nursing homes. And um, they were trying to attract people who maybe didn't, play Zelda games or hadn't played Zelda games with a new control scheme um, and new ways of, you know, designing the puzzles and progression. And, you know, I think there's a lot of room to debate whether they were successful. Um, but I do know that there are people out there who love this game, right? Like, I think we can probably ask people in our own communities, discord, like, is anyone here put Phantom Hourglass in their top five or maybe even top three? And we'll probably get some yes answers. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have gotten. I I don't know that we've seen anybody in our in our own community saying that they would maybe put it that high. But we, uh, ever since last week's episode, have gotten uh, more than a few people kind of going to bat for this game. Um, with a few of them saying that it was uh, one of their earlier Zelda memories, and like just there were a lot of um, you know positive mental connections that were formed off of it, right? Like uh, people that have some same level of nostalgia for this game that you and I might have for like Link's Awakening, for instance, yep. right? Um, which is powerful. You know, you can't deny that. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, it's hard to overstate the, you know, the impact that something being new feeling to you can have. Um, yeah. Yeah, I actually have an interesting story about that, which is uh, well, sort of interesting. But basically, I had a, I had a game design professor who um, she had been in the industry for decades before she taught the college I went to. And she uh, couldn't play twin stick controls on FPS. So she'd be like evaluating our projects and stuff. And she'd ask us to play and she'd watch um, because she just didn't. She didn't have like the the pathways in her mind to be able to control games that way. She'd never developed them. Um, and if you think back to like no, you and you and I, this might be relevant to you and I, Lyndon, like when Goldeneye uh, was a big game and then like Halo came out and Halo was the first, probably the first twin stick shooter you and I would have played. Yep. And it was probably really hard 
to figure out how to do this new control scheme. Yeah, it, it took a minute. And it's actually funny to think about that now because I went back somewhat recently and played GoldenEye on a single stick controller, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is its own kind of like, I, I was having to retrain my brain to be able to handle that, you know? It just like... Um, yeah, I mean, same thing with like Star Fox 64. Like I've been trying to play that on the Switch on and off since it got added to the N64 virtual console. And I, I just can't anymore. Like the, the <laughs> I'm so used to the double joystick controls that trying to go back to single stick is just it's so hard. And I never really thought too much about it. I guess I was I mean, I was really young when like Halo came out and um I played it because Lyndon had it on, on his Xbox and I'm sure my parents didn't really know too much about it. Um, or they wouldn't <laughs> have let me cause I was like six or seven probably. I think you kept and, that one uh, pretty under the radar. Yeah. Yeah. We, we did pretty good on keeping that you one to knew. ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, I knew it was something I was not supposed to be playing, but I did it anyway. Um, and I mean, it was just so formative to that generation of gaming like the Xbox, the original Xbox in my mind is one of the most, if not the most formative console besides maybe the Nintendo 64. Um, mm-hmm. But for, for even, you, even that, like, yeah, even that the, the Xbox has been, you know, like, like we said, like we've been talking about the dual stick, dual stick controls have carried on far past what the N64 was a uh, single stick and that weird ass controller. Um, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's interesting to think about that kind of stuff in a different context. So 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 basically, you know, one of the takeaways of all these things is that people really kind of imprint on control schemes that they maybe get used to at a more formative point. Um, I, for instance, I have a really hard time controlling mobile phone games where I have to control like an avatar or I have to play an FPS with a touch screen. Like, oh, yeah, I can't do it. Kids out there play Fortnite on their phones and they're really good. I to me when I try to play Fortnite on my phone, it feels like I'm, I don't know, trying to talk through water. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I tried playing Destiny two on on my iPhone via uh, Stadia when that was still a service, and mm-hmm. um, uh, it was bad. It just atrociously bad. Um, so, but yeah, it's all it, it is all generational and uh, um, preferences definitely do not remain constant across different generations of gamer. Uh, that much is definitely certain. Um, I was kind of touching on this just a little bit earlier when I was talking about the success of the DS as a platform. Uh, but one one last little bit of trivia uh, that I would like to mention is uh, an interesting one that I think you'll find interesting, at least, Matt. Um, but first, I'm going to ask you a question. If you had to guess, Matt. What would you say, where would you say that the Nintendo DS falls on the overall list of best-selling consoles of all time? Oh, man, it's probably like number two or three. Wow, okay. I'm surprised you got that. It is, uh, in fact, number two. The Nintendo DS is the second best-selling video game console of all time behind the PlayStation 2, which is number one. And it's actually not Mm -hmm. even that far behind. Um, It's real close to the top, uh, which that information shocked me because the DS was not like a super big console for me personally. Um, The Nintendo Switch is number three. Uh, But what that means is that we are currently playing one of the two Zelda games published on the most successful Nintendo console of all time. 
<laughs> so there you go. Which is wild. That that's is a hi- insane to me. That's a hyper-specific metric without any context associated with it whatsoever because like more recent Zelda games like Tears of the Kingdom Breath of the Wild have far outsold Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks, but like, I don't know. I thought it was a fun little tidbit. <laughs> it probably means as a percentage of owners of that console, these are probably some of the worst performing Zelda games. It, it, it's not really their fault. There's just a lot of people who owned DSs. That is one way in which to interpret the data. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, um, and I guess one last thing, where uh, where do you think about in your ranking you would have put this game before restarting it this time? Last or Dead second last. to last. OK, uh, it's contending with spirit tracks for that last place spot. And those two games have nothing in common, right? So it's clearly not this style of game that you have an issue with. <laughs> all right. Well, have you warmed to this style of game at all? I guess we'll find out in the Sacred Realms Rundown. Part one of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, of course, the plot recap. As read by Matt, he's got a live one, folks. He's got it hot and ready to let off the chain. Matt, take it away. As we leave the Temple of Fire with our new companion, we head back to Astrid to check in on what her gifts of foresight have in store for us. We arrive to a snarky comment from Linebeck and a much better reward from Astrid in the form of a unique gem that she calls a spirit gem. Additionally, she tells us that we will need three spirits to complete our journey, power, wisdom, and courage. She tells us that while she cannot see where the other spirits are located, she does know that the next hint is located in the Temple of the Ocean King on Merkay Island, where we found our first sea chart. So we head on back to the island with Astrid's parting words ringing in our head. The light that seeks your aid grows weaker still. On Merkay Island, we head back to the Temple of the Ocean King to start our search. But as soon as we enter the temple, Linebeck barges in and starts shouting at us about the risks of diving further into that cursed temple. His barrage is a confusing mixture of concern and condescension until Oceus shows up to offer a solution to the problem of the life-sucking mist. While nothing but the protective tiles can totally stop the power of the mist, there is an artifact that can slow its deadly progress. On the plinth above the entrance, Oshis has us claim the powerful Phantom Hourglass, title of the game drop, which can protect us from the power of the mist for a time. The sacred golden sands within this hourglass only flow in one direction and are powered by the sun, so once they run out, we will need to leave the temple to restore the glass's power. Oceus further reveals to us that the light we rescued from the dark sorcerer in the Temple of Fire was actually sacred sand that was stolen from this hourglass. It seems that the servant of whatever dark power has taken over this land have stolen the sands and used them to seal away the spirits that serve the Ocean King. As we free the spirits, we will also free the sacred sands and restore the phantom hourglass to its original power. This should let us explore deeper into the Temple of the Ocean King and discover more of its hidden secrets. With the hourglass in hand, we head into the depths of the temple to continue our search for the other clues to the next phase of our journey. 
The temple is still full of the deadly mist, and with Leaf's help, we open a door leading to the lower portion of the temple. Here we find a much larger section to explore, and the hourglass's power is the only thing that keeps us from being sucked dry by the mist. There are fewer safe zones here, and the temple also releases guards to patrol its hallways. These phantoms, as Leaf calls them, are extremely dangerous and nearly impervious. Their blows reduce the power of the hourglass so that we have to sneak around the corridors of this temple like thieves in the night. As we continue our exploration downward, we find the key to unlocking the final door to the clue is to take three force gems to their pedestals, which make the shape of the iconic Triforce that we became so familiar with on our last adventure. After securing the force gems, we claim the sea chart for ourselves and head outside with very little time to spare on the Phantom Hourglass's power. We head back to the ship, and once we remove the dust from the chart, we see that it has shown our next clue in the Northwestern Sea. This clue takes the shape of three blue circles in a roughly triangular pattern on an island in the middle of the Northern Sea. We set sail at once with Linebeck, but based on some chatter we heard on the dock, we decide to make a stop off at a nearby island that is said to sell cannons for ships. When we arrive, we are greeted by the apprentice cannon maker, who tells us that his master has shuttered himself in his workshop to create a new masterpiece for their workshop. He is kind enough to open the way for us, but we have to go around the back side of the island, which he says is infested with monsters. We find this to be true, but the lowly chews and keese and rats are no match for us, and using some handy bomb flowers, we eventually make it to the master's workshop. The master kindly sells us a cannon for the very reasonable price of 50 rupees, so we promptly take that deal and run like the wind before he changes his mind. The cannon proves invaluable as the path to the western side of the ocean is blocked by rocks that need to be blasted apart with the explosive ordnance. With the obstacle removed, we press forward to the unknown seas ahead. Not long after we enter the western side of the sea, we encounter thick fog like that which preceded the ghost ship's first appearance. Quickly after, we catch sight of that specter that haunts the seas and begin a furious chase to catch it. With the hope of finding Tetra before having to go on this long journey, we continue to chase the ship into the northern sea. Unfortunately, the haunted power of the ghostly vessel keeps us from getting too close, and eventually we get completely lost in the fog and find ourselves back at the edge of the southern sea. Every time we try to progress north towards the island that holds the next spirit, we continually end up back where we started. Admitting temporary defeat, we head south to find a clue about how to proceed. Back in the Southern Sea, we head to the island closest to the phenomenon, hoping to find someone who knows about a way through this supernatural fog. The islanders here on Melita Island seem to know only that the fog is something to be avoided at all costs. However, one of the islanders does tell us that the father of one of the residents was an explorer who claimed to have found a way through the fog, but disappeared many years ago. We head to see Romanos and ask him about his intrepid wayfare of a father. But, as is our luck recently, Romanos not only doesn't want to talk about his father, but becomes enraged at the very mention of him or his exploring. 
Right after he kicks kicks us out of his house, he has an abrupt change of heart and decides to spill the beans on what his old man knew, or at least to tell us where we might find clues to that knowledge. He points us to the hideaway in the hills behind their house, and we set off post-haste. Within the hideaway, we fight a few stray keys, but the big boy enemy is a new race of aquatic warrior that looks oddly like a phantom without any armor. This warrior is a Zora and uses its immense strength to swing its massive sword and a sturdy shield to block attacks from the front. We have to maneuver carefully to avoid its blows and blasts of fire and hit it from behind as much as possible. Eventually, the mighty warrior falls and the way is opened for us to find the secluded study of Romanos' father. We find a note that his real hideaway is somewhere else on the island, in a spot where lines drawn between his stone markers cross. So, after finding his four stone markers around the island, we draw the lines and head to the spot. Using the shovel that we found in the secluded study, we dig a hole and find the entrance to the real hideaway at last. On the wall there is a map detailing the route taken in the Northern Sea. We take quick note and head back to Lineback to start the journey north. Once we successfully navigate the convoluted path through the fog, we find ourselves in the unfamiliar territory of the Northern Sea. We decide to waste no time and head straight for the Isle of Gusts to find our next trapped spirit. True to its name, the island blows with a fierce wind that threatens to push us off any ledge that we are near. Also, the island appears to be completely infested with miniature goblin things called mini-blends. Luckily, these nuisances are easy to kill and drop 20 rupee pieces regularly, so their annoyance is slightly worth it. As we move along the island, using the gusts to leap distances that we normally couldn't, we push towards the center of the island to find the temple that contains what we're looking for. We find the entrance, but it is blocked by continuous gales of hurricane-force winds. A stone nearby tells us to seek a clue at the northwest end of the aisle, so we head off in that direction. Using some handy gusts of wind that lift us off the ground, we eventually make it to the place marked by the stone tablet, and read a hint about having to activate three windmills in order to open the door to the temple. The tablet marks the location of the windmills, so we make our way over to that section of the island. There are some nasty critters blocking our way, and the sandworms of this island are easily alerted by any movement on their territory. Luckily, some bomb flowers make short work of these nasty monsters, and we activate the three windmills by blowing on them. We feel that the island reacts to the activation of the windmills and head back to the door of the temple to find it open and free of all winds. So we head inside to start our exploration at once. Even though the wind temple is inside the rock walls of the intricate cave system running through the island, it is still rife with gale force winds. The maze-like system of walkways and the myriad of traps and holes make progress slow, but this isn't our first rodeo in a dungeon. The switches that require to be blown up by bombs simultaneously are a neat new trick, but don't hold us back for long. The timing to make it through the gaps in the blowing winds to avoid a bottomless pit are like old hat, and the use of vertical air gusts to get over impassable obstacles are fun brain teasers to keep us going. This dungeon is full of tricky things like that, but also home to some enemies that would love to eat us for lunch. 
The sandworms from the surface return, and the classic red shoes get an upgrade with some rock armor, but neither are matches for the bomb flowers that are frequent in the area. On the bottom floor of the dungeon, we use one of the small keys that we retrieved to get the bomb bag, and can now destroy these pesky beasts on command. We head back to the main floor where the boss room door is housed and blow open the path to the locking mechanism with our bombs. We head into the doorway and find ourselves back outside on top of the Temple of Wind and face to face with a gigantic blue Octorok. This creature doesn't act like a normal Octorok as it spins around rapidly to create a tornado underneath its prodigious body and begins to float high above the ground. It flies around the roof of the temple and spawns smaller tornadoes that it throws our direction to try to knock us off the roof to the ground far below. We play a game of dodge the tornado with with Cycloc until we get the idea to use the tornadoes to our advantage. We toss a bomb into one of them underneath our foe, and to our great delight it is cast down from its perch on high. We rush and slash away until it regains enough sense to take to the air once more. This starts our battle in earnest, and we use the tornadoes it spawns again and again, trying to dethrone this malevolent wind monster from its perch in the sky. Eventually, after what feels like a dozen or more successful bombings, Cyclock falls to our bombs and blade. Like Blaz, it explodes in a burst of light, which we now know to be the sacred sands from the Phantom Hourglass. Also, like Blaze, the sands coalesce onto the ground to reveal the same symbol that is shown on the map, and a fairy rises from the ground at that spot. This fairy is bright blue like the sky and introduces itself as Neri, the spirit of wisdom. Neri joins our merry band and declares that that the Ocean King must be locked up somewhere as well, just like the spirits. We grab the piece of heart that Cyclock dropped and head off to find our third and final spirit. Hopefully with their combined power, we will finally be able to track down the ghost ship and rescue Tetra. But will that be the end of our journey? It seems like there is far more going on on these seas than a ghost ship kidnapping travelers, and we get the feeling that the journey may be much longer than we originally thought. Well done, as always, Matt. Uh... Kind of chunky for a top-down uh, Zelda plot recap, right? I mean, this yeah, one had some girth. Um, yeah, yes, uh, five five full pages. Um, definitely a lot chunkier for a second chapter. Like the the intro chapters are always kind of chunky, just because you got all the setup and all the lore and world building you have to do. But normally, the second chapters, like second and third, are normally kind of slow. Fourth, you have that mid-game break where you either get the Master Sword or get, you know, another item and do a larger chunk. And then, you know, five, six, seven are kind of slow. And then eight and nine are the end. But this one was pretty beefy uh, again. So um, interesting to see that. Hopefully, you know, hopefully that bodes well for the game overall, that there's more here than there seems to be. Um, I think that could be a good thing. So I guess we'll see how that pans out. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that in part two of the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is our takes, where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. Max, as the guest of the evening, I'm going to bounce it to you first, man. (laughs) How are you feeling about this section of the game? And I guess if you want to get a few thoughts in here about how you're feeling about Phantom Hourglass having, you know, just recently um, dived back into it, uh, you know, then that would be appropriate here as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, quick question. Is Temple of the Ocean King 
go into the dungeon section. It uh, no, it does not. Temple of the Ocean King uh, is free reign to talk about in our takes. Ooh, nice. Okay, so I definitely want to talk about that, but uh, maybe I'll talk about the other stuff first. Um, I had the same reaction uh, that Matt just had, where like, wow, there's like a lot of stuff that happened in this section mm-hmm. for a top down in particular, but kind of for any Zelda game, there isn't usually that much kind of golden path plot stuff going on in most Zelda games. Um, I actually replayed the first couple dungeons of this over the last couple days to remember it better. Uh, and I, <laughs> I sat down last night at like 1130. I'm like, okay, I'm going to knock out this dungeon in a half hour before bed. And <laughs> how'd that go? It took me a bit more like an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah i mean it took me an hour and a half just to get to the isle of gusts like it was it it was not a short amount of game time yeah um i i think it's cool that this is where we start to like see the shape of what this ocean world and exploring it and moving around in it is more like um you know at this point we're seeing multiple islands we're um, hearing villagers talk about their opinions of other parts of the world or their fears uh, in the, you know, the form of these evil mists. Uh, you know, we get a run in with the villain of the game or the villain so far, whatever the ghost ship is. You know, I remember being when I replayed this, you know, a few weeks ago before Tears of the Kingdom, I was shocked to run into the ghost ship again at this stage of the game. Um. Like, what did you two feel when you first ran into that thing? I mean, I, yeah, I was surprised for sure. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely felt so in the absence of a clearer big bad. Um, it definitely did feel like an appearance from, I guess, it, it felt like if you kind of caught a glimpse of Ganondorf between uh, Kokiri Forest and Death Mountain in Ocarina of Time, right? Um, which kind of in hindsight would have actually kind of upped the stakes and the ante in that. Yeah, game I think that would have been kind of right? cool. <laughs> Random Ganondorf drive-bys in Hyrule Field. Right, exactly. It's just like, hey, what's he up to? Um, no, I, 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 I think it was definitely an effective way to sort of ratchet up the tension. Um, I think the ghost ship is a really cool concept. Um, it's a, it's an interesting force that's driving the plot of this game, and I think that, um it could quickly kind of fall out of sight, out of mind, you know, if not done properly. But I think that um, these kind of like creepy appearances of it on the high seas are actually a pretty effective way to keep it feeling present and immediate as a threat or at least a going concern. Um, And it, it is just thematically appropriate to the setting as well, right? Just the haunted ship that's traversing the ocean. Um, I, I feel like that is actually a good, you know, last week we were talking about how this is kind of, uh, the legend of Zelda curse of the black pearl, right? Like we were sort of feeling that way about it up front. Um, and this is kind of keeping those vibes front and center, which I think was a really good decision. Um, and, and, you know, it also serves a functional purpose, right? Because it's helping to extend the amount of time that it takes to traverse, um, from, uh, the island, uh, island of fire, um, all the way up to the gust island, right? Um, using that fog mechanic and the you know the puzzle you have to solve in there, right? And using the ghost ship as like a setting for like causing that. I think it's a few things that are working pretty well together to help um, extend this section of the game. How do you feel about it, Matt? 
Yeah, I think it was a very interesting, um, like you said, Lynn, the use of the fog, kind of like a Lost Woods thing. Um, I, I really liked, actually. Um, I think that that's it's a good way to have that in a new and exciting way. Um, I also like that it was more than just point A to point B. It was point A to point like F, because you have to go get the cannon in order to get to the Western side of the ocean and then go North and then backtrack South to a new place. Like, and I like that everything you did was to a new area. You're not backtracking to the same place every time. Like the only real backtracking to the same place would be Merkay Island back to the ocean King uh, temple, but it's a whole new section of the temple. So it didn't feel as much like backtracking um, as you know, some other games have done. And I think they're utilizing the space very well. Um, I think it's odd to me that the ocean is, it feels very empty for the most part and the islands feel very small. I'm sure that that's probably just having to do with the DS. Um, but that was an interesting thing that I noticed. Um, but yeah, I think I really have enjoyed, um, the use of the space in this section of game. When when you say the space, you're referring to like the the layout of the ocean. Yeah, and, and like having you go to all these different places to do um, unique things that further the plot in a unique way. Um, mm. It's not just it's not just um, go from point A to point B with a slight detour. It's go to three whole new islands in order to. I guess two new islands to get to the Isle of Gusts, and I think um, what, which is your what third talking, new island. What we're talking about here, one of the reasons we're having trouble labeling this is I think usually we would be just referring to this as the overworld. We would be saying we've got good use of overworld here, right? Hmm. Except mm-hmm. it's not exactly applicable in this instance um, because, uh, you know, we have the sea. But I don't think that I would necessarily call it an overworld in the traditional sense, right? Um, the islands have some overworld feel to them, but they're still contained in a way that actually makes them more similar to uh, the lead-ups to dungeons in Skyward Sword than anything else, in my opinion. Um, they're they're a bit more uh, puzzly and a bit more contained in that way, at least the ones that I've encountered so far. So, um yeah, I think the, like the sea and the way that it's presented to us in this game is kind of unique in terms of the Zelda series that we've played up until this point. And so I think what Matt is saying, and I'm pretty sure sh- I, I think I agree with him, is that if you're going to do the sea this way, then I started seeing some potential for how it could be done successfully um, in some of the things that were given to us here. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good summary, Lyndon, and uh, and a good. Yes, that's what I was trying to say, more or less. Yeah. Uh, I know you, you two talked about this last week, but I didn't get a chance to chat about it. So the, uh, the experience of moving around the Great Sea in this game like really doesn't do it for me. Um, I will like, I just, agree with that, yes. I don't feel adventurous when I'm on this ocean. I don't feel like it's big um, or like there are mysteries to be found most of the time. Like I know there are, there are some islands that are not on the map. Um, but for the most part, it's like, yeah, you see the map before you go somewhere. Uh, and it's 
pretty small. And in some ways, there's some cool stuff they do with it being kind of this intimate feeling chunk of the world. Um, it's like it's like this is the size of a small town's landmass or something is <laughs> this chunk yeah. of the Great Sea. Yeah. So it's it's got a little bit of that, like, I don't know, Twin Peaks, like small town energy going on here. Yep. Um, it's, it's just a bunch of Mabe villages scattered yeah. around the ocean. <laughs> uh, so I do think there's some some inadvertent benefit there, but I think they wanted it to feel adventurous and I don't think it lands for me. I would be curious what like a child playing this is their first Zelda game feels about it. So I bet it I bet it can feel really adventurous to someone of that sort. Uh, I think that so I, I agree with you. The if if the if the goal of making sea traversal feel adventurous is what we're talking about, then I don't I, I don't think it lands like my opinions on this haven't really changed from what we were talking about last week. I think the reason that I may be feeling a bit more positive on it this week is just because, um, you know, there are things that are kind of uh, there are hoops you have to jump through. There are things that you have to do. There's uh, tasks that you have to complete. And it does a decent job of moving you through them, and they are all individually fun enough to do, I think is where I'm kind of at. Um, I I definitely don't feel like the fantasy of the thing is hitting for me in a very big way right now, which I think is what you're getting at, Max. Yeah. Uh, They do do a pretty interesting and good job of like essentially – making a kind of linear progression through space out of a ocean, right? Because Wind Waker was an open world game. Um, and this is very much not open world at all. It has a linear progression through, through stuff. Um, and, you know, they do it by not letting you go to quadrants where you don't have the map for yet. And they do it with <laughs> big, weird, long lines of stones in the ocean and evil fog and you know they come up with all this stuff to like keep you contained and you know i I think i gotta give them kudos for figuring out ways to do all that um yeah i i think i the jury's still out for me on whether or not i think that there is uh success overall to be had in this system in this way of doing things or whether or not it's going to be a net negative um i i'm going to put this week's events as one point in favor of the system with the caveat that it's still probably not my preferred way um to be exploring a zelda world so i don't know if that makes it uh, i don't know if that like evens out everything and just leaves me in a neutral place or not um got some conflicting feelings about that for sure one thing that i definitely do want to talk about though is so uh we do revisit the temple of the ocean king early on in this episode Mm -hmm. and going into this game, I knew that that was kind of one of the gripes that some people had. And I didn't even know the context. I just knew like I had seen online people saying, Oh, phantom hourglass, pretty fun. Don't like going back to the temple of the ocean King all the time. So I knew that this was going to be a place that we continue to revisit. Um, And then when we actually do get there, Uh, in this chunk of game, it kind of comes into focus exactly what the structure of the Temple of the Ocean King is, Um, Mm. at least this section right here. And what that structure is, is basically a precursor to the Silent Realms in Skyward Sword, right? It's it's an interesting kind of stealth-based area where you're trying to avoid line of sight 
um, from some unkillable enemies um, and sneak around an area in order to collect some things. And then you can progress past that point. Um, So, Matt, I'm going to send it to you first. How do you feel about the Temple of the Ocean King? Um, it's fine. I don't hate it. I don't love it. Um, the stealth mechanic is, I think, easy enough to kind of ignore. Like, I didn't find myself really avoiding the phantoms very much because there are so many areas to just pop into a safe zone and be fine or break a red pot and hop in there and be fine. So I didn't feel overly constrained or nervous about the phantoms. Um, I still, I, I still do not like the um, mechanic of holding something heavy over your head and slowing down your movement. I think that's a dumb mechanic that I could just do without. Mm, the and, timer and is you, also fine. Like, and the, here, that's, so going back to what you were just saying, though, Matt, and like it's worth mentioning here, they kind of triple down on that whole situation, right? Whereas in the dungeon, right. last last week's dungeon and this one, um, yes, you have to do that with the boss key, but it's kind of not such of a much, right? In neither dungeon does it really actually take that much time or effort to do. Um, but in the Temple of the Ocean King, you've got three force gems, uh, which don't look familiar at all. And um right. and yeah, and you've got to you've got to sneak all three of them around this the the whole layout of this place. So it's it definitely it it grinds things to a bit of a halt, that's for sure. Yeah, I I don't it doesn't add anything for me, right? Like there's there's no added enjoyment or like and the the added complexity is just okay, now I have to time things a little bit better. And that's that's not an ad. That's not a net positive for me. Um, it's kind of lazy, in my opinion. Um, I think the most interesting thing that they did in this entire section was where you have to drop the phantom, an unkillable enemy, into a hole using a trap. I think that was the most interesting thing about this whole section of the Ocean King and um, the Temple of the Ocean King. Like Everything else was just kind of like, fine. Did you know? I maybe do something wrong? Because I didn't drop a phantom into a trap. That's how you, you get the key. Do it. You can get the key by hitting it with your boomerang too. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. See, I dropped him in. I dropped him into the trap and killed him. So that's uh, how I got the key. Man, that sounds like a way more fun way to do that. It okay. was. <laughs> All right. Well, good for you, Matt. Um, look, I, I. So I think that this was. F- I, I agree with you. It was fine. I think that it is. It's a mode that Zelda goes into sometimes uh, that I never typically tend to outright love as much as some other things, right? Um, This is kind of a breakdown in the typical structure of what you're doing minute to minute in a Zelda game, Um, and it creates more of like a little contained minigame more so than anything else. And I just – I feel like this is never – executed on to a level where i feel like it's its existence is justified whenever it sort of happens silent realms was sort of the same thing um you know i didn't hate silent realms either but i also didn't love them and i really didn't feel like they were at the end of the day a necessary part of skyward sword and by that same token um i don't necessarily feel like this visit to the temple of the ocean king was like oh yeah this is an integral part of this game experience. And I think, I don't think it would have been a very fun game without it. Right. Um, that's kind of where I, my feelings are, 
at the moment. And, you know, of course, this game has plenty of time to, um, you know, give me reasons to feel otherwise. We'll we'll see what happens with that. Max, what do you think about the Temple of the Ocean King? Because I know you said you have notes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so the Temple of the Ocean King, I have strong positive and strong negative feelings about uh, a nice mix. Um, to me, it feels like they're trying to come up with a different like game mode for a Zelda game, right? I go into this and it's like, they're like trying to be like, what could be take the place of a dungeon in the Zelda format that doesn't actually play or feel anything like a dungeon. And like, this is what they came up with. Um, to my eyes, the, this is this is what I assume is the order of like inspirations here. Um, I think that they started off wanting to make a Zelda game with stylus. And there's a few quotes where they talk about how the stylus allows them to um, letting players take notes with the stylus on the map allows them to make a Zelda game about giving the players information and then making the players remember that information. There's a lot of puzzles and stuff in this game that are basically about finding info somewhere far away and then writing it down in a detailed way and then remembering that you need it later. Mm. Um, and so I think that I think that was their starting point. Uh, I don't know for sure. And I think one of the next things they they ask themselves is like, how do we make kind of a dungeon experience where this is relevant Right. Like what how do you make a dungeon where players remembering information over time matters? Uh, and and to my eyes, that's what the entire Temple of the Ocean King is all about. Uh, you know, you you return over and over again. And every time you do, if you're doing it right, you will you will move through it much faster because you'll have a bunch of notes on your map mm-hmm. uh, and you'll have new gear. So you can feel that like, oh, this crack in the wall that I couldn't get through before. Now I found a shortcut. Um, And there's this kind of pleasure you can get from like mastering it by repeatedly doing it, but doing it better each time Um, when you're like, oh, oh, I can bypass this thing that used to take me a minute and a half. Now I have a tool that lets me just do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, I think that's kind of the core of what they're going for is like this feeling of conquering the Temple of the Ocean King by understanding it and getting tools to help you navigate it better. Uh, And I think that's cool. I like all that. Uh, I act, I enjoy those moments in the Temple of the Ocean King, some of which you kind of get your first taste of that this time around. There's more of that later on. Um, at the same time, I feel like the actual experience of being in the Temple of the Ocean King kind of sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> um, Not to put too fine a point on things here, but... <laughs> but, uh, like, if, if you were to ask someone, like, name all the things you don't like in... in you know, action games like this, they'd be like, I don't like escort quests. I don't like things that make me go slow. I don't like stealth. I don't like, <laughs> you know, backtracking and redoing stuff. Uh, you know, and that's just, that's what the whole thing is. It's stealth. It's backtracking. It's going slow because you're carrying heavy things. Um, they, it's like they went down a checklist of all the least fun things to do. Yeah. In a, Zelda game because none, put them none in here. of these things are Zelda's bread and butter, right? Like Zelda is known for doing a few specific things very, very well for doing them the best, right? Um, and I would not say stealth is one of them for sure, right? Like, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, stealth in most Zelda games is there to like 
make a contrast between early game weak link and late game powerful link. Like yeah. that's why they have the stealth segments, no cream of time. Or, or it's padding that's for or, in between acts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think it's ever very successful as a experience in of itself. It's only good because it can give contrast for other experiences. Um, I mean, even as recently as Breath of the Wild, right? You've got stealth sections where, like, you have to follow that Korok through Korok ugh. forest, right? And not get noticed by it. And I I know multiple people who quit playing Breath of the Wild at the Yiga hideout. Oh, yeah. Because they couldn't stand playing it in stealth. And they were the sort of player who, like, felt like they had to do that. They didn't want to go, like, skip that whole chunk of the game. Yeah. So they stopped playing instead. Uh, <laughs> you hate to hear it. Yikes. Oh, and the other thing that people hate is running out of time, like 15 minutes into a time limit and having to start over, uh, which is what happens, mm-hmm. I think, if you run out of time in here. I th- uh, that sounds right. I will say that I never got even close to running out of time on the Phantom Hourglass while I was doing this. And uh, I think a lot of that is just, you know, I I play a lot of Zelda games, right? And so I'm pretty like even even with a lot of the unfamiliar trappings that are happening here, stylus movement, you know, a, a, like a layout that I'm not familiar with. Um, even with all those things, I was feeling like I was booking it through here in more than enough time. Um, that being said, though, I know that that is not universal to all people who are going to be playing this game. And so I would imagine that that time constraint on top of all these things we just mentioned is, yeah, a bit of a downer. Yeah, it's like it doesn't usually come up. It's kind of more of a false threat for someone who's, you know, effective at Zelda games like we all are. Uh, But it probably does actually come up as a thing that like like maybe a younger player probably actually runs into this time limit. And that's probably not a fun moment for them. False threat. I like that. That's a good term. Uh, Oh, the other thing you have to do a lot is wait. Everyone loves waiting for slow moving enemies to move around on the map, right? (laughs) I have a note here that I said, literally posting on Twitter while I wait for the phantoms from my notes. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, but did you hit your rate limit in the time that it took for the phantom to get back? Uh, Um, There's also no combat, of course. Right, right. Um, And I think that that is maybe it's cardinal sin like i think that if there had been some fun combat element to this i think that that could have elevated it a little bit in my mind but um it's again it's it's all of the things that you don't like and none of the things that you do like for the most part with the with the caveat um of you know there being some fun interactions with the base loop of the game which is the stylus and annotation on your map right yeah Um, if you're not doing it Get in the habit when you go in here of noting down everything like cracks in the wall, switches, locations like you're going to thank yourself later on your subsequent visits because you just can immediately know where everything is. Good tip. Uh, oh, Good tip. Uh, I guess another thing that I think is um, bothers me about the Temple of the Ocean King is I feel like it's supposed to be this grand central architectural like place, right? Like this is the center of this game. Uh, and I feel like it's not interesting from an aesthetic perspective mm. or it doesn't have like a strong personality. Yeah. It doesn't really feel that much different from the other dungeons. Um, and, uh, you know, as you go down floors, they're kind of the same like stones and same structure and same palette. I think the same music. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I remember right, all the way down. 
Uh, I don't know if it changes towards the end of the game, but yeah, no, I, I think that that's a good observation. Um, you know, it's tough because the top down games have traditionally had difficulty in portraying a sense of grand scale, right? Um, some of the more recent ones, like, you know, a link between worlds had one or two places that I would say felt pretty massive in scope. And, and that was impressive for a top down Zelda game. Um, Link's Awakening has one or two that I can maybe think of, but even that, it, you know, um, yeah, they, they kind of need to go out of their way to like have you standing on like the peak of something with a big vista behind it in the two right. games. Like they do that with the top of the pyramid in Link to the Past, and yeah, you know, yeah. the Windfish's Egg in Link's Awakening. Yeah, so you're right that that's a weakness of this. I think that that's a pretty good place to leave that conversation for now, unless you've got something else you want to drop on it, Max. No, I have a few more thoughts, but they're. They will be real relevant later in the season. So, okay, that sounds good. And of course, we're having you back for the ghost ship episode. Um, so you'll have ample opportunity to uh, let those off the chain at that time. Uh, do we have anything else that we want to say about our takes uh, before we move on? I know we haven't really talked about um, we haven't talked about the diversion to what's the island where we find the Wayfarers workshop. I forget the name of the island. It's like Mol- Mol- Molina, 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 yeah. Molina, Molina Island. Um, yeah. yeah, we haven't really talked about that that much. I don't think there's really a whole lot to get into there necessarily. Um, I will say that the enemy fight when you get into the cave, um, the enemy that's guarding the workshop before you get in there. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a moblin or a phantom or what it is. Um, I will it's say that, that it's a Zora. Yeah. Did you not hear my plot recap, Lyndon? Well, you said it was a Zora in your plot recap. It is a Zora. I, I don't. Is it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Acor- according to online guides, it is a Zora. Because we saw Zora in the Wind Waker and it looked like an Ocarina of Time Zora, not like a weird swamp creature thug i am telling you just what i saw online zora warrior Hmm. he's correct that is a weird looking zora okay well actually you know it's really fun because it looks kind of like king dorafan in my opinion like well now that i'm looking at a picture of it it it's it looks like it's a modernization of the classic zora aka the zola right um it, like the the kind that you would have been seeing in uh, Link to the Past or whatever. Like it's more creature from the Black Lagoon looking. Um, so actually, you know what? I'm going to give it some points for that. That's that's cool. That's yeah, interesting. The, the Kappa Zora. Yeah, I, I appreciate that as a stylistic choice. Um, anyway, uh, I will say that this fight, I'm not sure if I enjoyed it or not. Um, I, I either enjoyed it because it was difficult and took me a minute or it just frustrated the heck out of me because I still don't have a good feel for combat in this game. Um, you know, I, I feel like everything is taking several levels of intentionality in order to execute when I'm getting into harder fights, right? Like moving with the stylus hit swinging with the sword using an item so in this case you have to throw the boomerang around the back of the zora and hit it in the back and stun it and then you have to walk around behind it and hit it with your sword in order to do damage before it um gets out of its stun phase right and all of those things are just difficult to do i found i i had i had trouble with this just from a um motor skills and coordination standpoint more so than anything else I'm finding that like I, I 
in our first episode, we talked about how we kind of think combat could be good um, if we get used to it and would like to see it used outside of just trash mobs. At least I think we did. If we didn't, I meant to mention that. But um, anyway, uh, this being on the, you know, that list of more difficult combat encounters, I did not enjoy it um, because I cannot move and fight at the same time. I cannot move and throw my boomerang. I have to stand there and try to throw my boomerang with a stylus. And while I'm doing that, Mr. Zora warrior is over there about to hit me with his big sword or shoot me with a fireball. And, uh, like there's just nothing I can do about it. And it, it, it was very frustrating, a very frustrating combat experience for me. Yeah, the the combat in this game for me, it feels like I'm playing a Zelda game with a huge like debuff, like someone, you know, put a stun on me and I'm like slow and stupid and like my controls are reversed and like (laughs) I'm struggling to do the things that are very easy to do in any other Zelda game. Um, And it's really hard for me to uh, kind of objectively evaluate how much of that is me sucking at this combat system versus this combat system actually not allowing for as high of skill. Um, I think the reality is that it is kind of inherently a sloppier and harder to control combat system, but maybe I'm just not used to it and someone else is really good. Yeah, um, I, I'm waiting to see. I know I said this last week. Maybe this is just optimi- wild optimism at this point. I'm waiting to see if if this just clicks with me at some point and I kind of get my head around it and I'm like, oh, OK, now I understand the way that I'm supposed to be doing this. Now I understand how to like take advantage of these systems together. I don't know if I'm going to get to that point or not. Um We'll see, <laughs> you know, uh, in in the context of this one specific fight, I did not get there. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, do we have anything else we want to say that's just general our takes about this section of the game before we move on, start talking about the dungeon? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, can I talk really quick about the stylus controls for combat? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, the interesting thing about the stylus controls in this game is it kind of decouples your actions from your avatar's position. Um, they do this thing where you click on a target that you want to swing your sword at, and you have like a really wide range for being able to do that. Like you can click on an enemy that's like halfway across the screen and your and Link will just do a hop towards it. Um, so it kind of does this interesting thing where like your effective combat range is actually way higher than in a typical top-down Zelda game um, for sword combat. Uh, and uh, targeting specific spots on the map with like projectiles, like whether you're throwing something or, you know, on your when you're on your boat, when you're shooting your cannon, you can just tap on the thing and it will automatically hit that spot. In some ways, it's almost like a, you know, playing a shooter with a mouse right? Like you shoot the point you click on. Um, and that's, that's all kind of interesting to me. I think it works much better with the smaller trash enemies than yeah. it does this kind of mini boss type thing. Um, cause I do actually find it kind of satisfying when I'm like running through an area and like seven Octorox pop up and I can just like pop them by clicking them with my stylus. Yeah. Uh, Oh, by the way, super, I super advise getting a long stylus. Like, don't use the default one that your 3DS or DS has. 
buy like a five dollar pack of like pen length styluses on like oh, that's Amazon. a good idea and then you can finally solve the problem of your hand blocking half the screen yeah especially when i'm <laughs> especially wild. when i'm like trying to run to the left right i'm just yeah like, my, you my can't see anything completely yeah yeah <laughs> uh, you shouldn't need to do this to solve such a fundamental like blocking half your screen problem in a game but it will solve it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That that's a great tip, Max. I will be doing that actually probably tonight. So cool. Um, <laughs> uh, anyways, that was all I had on that. Point. Oh, uh, I did have some other notes. Sorry, I'm like totally dragging this out. But, no, it's uh, okay. It's, okay. it's all good. Um, and it's a Max Nichols episode. We we would be remiss if it wasn't two hours long. <laughs> I have a note that I literally felt lightheaded after blowing on the 3ds to clear the dust off the map. Because I couldn't figure out where the mic was. Because it's like this t- <laughs> tiny, tiny little thing. And okay, I, so here's a hilarious thing about that. I whole hate thing. that mechanic Blowing more than anything else in the entire game. It is so goofy. It's so goofy and dumb and I don't like it. But so when I was playing this today, I did this entire chunk of game on my flight to Seattle this morning. Um, and the fun thing about that is that apparently the noise the ambient noise of the airplane was enough to trick <laughs> the ds into thinking that i was blowing into the microphone um so like w- there was a point yeah you know, like when you have to go up in front of the windmills and you're supposed to blow into the mic and the <laughs> windmill just starts going automatically going like, went up to them. i just walked up to them and before i even had a chance to blow into the microphone they just started spinning uh. all on their own I, I remembered I had a flashback to the first time I played this game in 2007. I remember being on a bus like in the night to going back to college after visiting home and playing this game and reaching one of these microphone parts. Well, like people were sleeping around me on this bus and me just having to turn <laughs> off the game because I couldn't <laughs> trigger the microphone. Well, it makes me wonder what would have happened. I don't know if there's any spots in this game where you have to like be like the absence of sound like you have to be silent or something like there can be no noise that sound that i can't believe that that's in this game or not but i mean like (laughs) imagine how that would work like if you're on this airplane right it's like if you're trying to do a gyro control game in a car while it's moving right it's a similar sort of thing (laughs) where it just it can't be done because the plane's too loud right yeah uh I have a note that Merkay Island for a central like main town is surprisingly bland like Boring. most of the villages aren't named. There isn't much to do. It doesn't feel like there's side quests or secrets here. Yeah. Like, it's not like a windfall Island or, a, um, you know, the made village. Or yeah. There just isn't much going on here. Yeah. I actually do feel like it's closest analog is made village and it, it falls pretty far short of that as well. There's, you know, there's character interactions, there's side quests, item trading, mini games to do in Mabe Village, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it's notable that this is since Link's Awakening, NPCs have always been named and like had unique designs in Zelda games. And then Twilight Princess and Phantom Hourglass both come out and they both have tons of like faceless, nameless, forgettable NPCs again. Yeah. Which is an interesting kind of downturn for the series. Uh, partially because they probably just wanted them to feel more populated and they couldn't design like 300 characters, but <laughs> still, uh, I have a note that's like, why is a derpy dude with angel wings delivering my mail instead of the awesome Rito? Okay, what, I, dude, what is I he? hate that thing. I hate what him. I don't he? know what he is. I don't like it. It creeps me out. It's really gross. 
Why does he read my mail to me? Like, can he not just deliver my mail? I mean, this seems like a, a level of personal interaction that I don't really want. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really waiting for a bit more of an explanation on on what this character is or if it's just one of those one of those weird Zelda characters that just show up out of the clear blue sky sometimes with no explanation. Right. Like Tingle started this way, you know. <laughs> This uh, this was kind of one of the first examples of a Zelda B team. Um, prior to this, basically every Zelda game was made by like the Zelda team. There were never two Zelda games in development at, at once. Other than maybe Capcom when they were making the Oracles, I guess. Um, but this was the first time where like Twilight Princess was being developed at the same time. This game was Iji Aonuma was the director of Twilight Princess and the producer of this and it was very much like a lot of the people who weren't working on Twilight Princess were making this game. And I feel like it kind of just comes through because mm-hmm. it's kind of got a lower quality bar like everywhere. Character designs, environment interests, music. Well, some of the music's awesome, actually. Linebeck's theme is great. Um, Linebeck's theme is great. Um, do you feel like this is maybe a reason that uh, so people have always said now that the Switch is a unified Nintendo console and we're not split between handheld and and living room sets right um people have always said oh now there's the opportunity to do to have both right you can have the top down games and the 3d games on one console together Mm -hmm. um do you feel like maybe a reason that that could be unlikely to happen or or maybe even shouldn't happen is because you would be sacrificing a certain level of quality by doing that in the way that this was by having it in development by a less experienced team at the same time as their marquee title was in development. Um, I don't think it has to be this way. Uh, like, I think there is room for multiple teams to be doing amazing work simultaneously. Um, I just don't think it happened this time. Um, I mean, the, the B team now is, uh, I'm drawing a blank on their name. The Grezzo. Grezzo, the remake team. <laughs> yeah. So far, the remake team. I'm still kind of waiting. I feel like they're going to announce a new 2D game made well, by Grezzo. They're they're batting a thousand so far. So good on them. Unless you count, unless you don't like the changes to Majora's Mask. Um, <laughs> those like were those arguably. I don't. Nintendo, though. <laughs> we uh, know you don't. We know you don't. Hey, Matt, I have something for you. Oh, you do? What is that? Ah, nice. Well played. I actually yep, need to go, go get another beer. <laughs> um, okay, that was me. all the yeah the notes I had. Okay, all right, that sounds good. Um, man, that was a you know this is just one of those games though, right? Like very similar to Zelda Two. I think um, the tradition of us having our best content coming from the most controversial games in this series is alive and well. And <laughs> I really do appreciate that. If nothing else. Uh-huh. Um, oh, I was going to, I don't know if we need to wait for Matt to come back. No, go for it. I was going to ask. I haven't, you, I haven't uh, left yet. Oh, <laughs> uh, if you thought the overworld map navigation had the same issues that you have with the Zelda two overworld blended. Oh, man. I mean, it it is weird because there was a point when I was playing this morning. um, I was on the Isle of Gusts and I was looking at the map screen above my main play screen and thinking, man, that actually looks kind of Zelda 2 ish. Right. And and it's styling. I know that's not exactly what you're asking. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're talking mostly in terms of like sea traversal. Right. And the way you work around the world on like a macro level. You're you basically you're looking at a map right yeah and then there's this mini game of like i don't know 
alley shooting like with your cannons as you travel right, afterwards. Right, right. But the the actual like navigation experience is like, yeah, you're looking at a map. I think in some ways this is actually less successful than Zelda 2 because um, at least what Zelda 2 was able to do was to miniaturize a grand world and, impl- and imply scale, mm-hmm. right? Um, whereas what this is kind of doing is making it – it's like it, it feels like it's showing me – it's showing me a body of water the size of a medium-ish sized lake. With a few uh, a few small islands on it, right? And saying, hey, look at this. This is the ocean, right? <laughs> um, like the scale is just not translating. And, uh, and, and on top of that, like what's kind of really driving that home for me is the fact that even when you're on your main, like when you're actually on your sailing screen, right? All the, the props, like the 3D objects that are, making up these islands and rock formations and whatnot that you're sailing to, they even look kind of unimpressive at that scale. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's no scale where this stuff is being displayed to the player where I actually think it looks impressive and is like portraying this sense of like a grand world in the way that they want, at least with Zelda two, I was able to read between the lines of what they were showing me and extrapolate some of that feeling from it. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I, I, I really agree. I think the, the biggest point of failure for me is when you get on your boat and it feels like you should be spending a lot of time sailing between islands, but everything takes you like 30 seconds to get in between. And it's like, this is supposed to be an island that it houses a bunch of people and, you know, is large and you hop on and it's, you know, it, it takes up barely, you know, more than two screens. Um, the, the, the scale is, is not there and, um, totally agree that Zelda two actually did this much better. How do you feel Max? I, I actually pretty much agree. Um, I, I actually was not a, did not have any problems really with the overworld from Zelda two other than that. I, I wish there'd been a bit more of an exploration element to it, but like, I liked the way that it portrayed a large world. Um, this world feels like it should have been, they should have chosen to make it feel intimate. Um, Mm. like they should have embraced the fact that like, Oh, this is only a lake, right? Like maybe this is just a small province in a distant land, uh, where there's a local problem. And like, I mean, that's what they did with Link's awakening and Majora's mask. Right. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. and I feel like they would have been better served by embracing, uh, that element and yeah. instead of what it feels like they did, which is it kind of is confused about whether it's trying to portray a large world or not. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. Um, I, and I think that that is a really relevant point. I actually have a sneaking suspicion that we're going to be measuring phantom hourglass against Zelda two in some, in some interesting and unexpected ways throughout this season. Um, if for no other reason, I mean, Zelda two is the current bottom of our ranking, right? So in some ways <laughs> it just kind of like bears compared because we're already, you know, obviously we've started off in sort of an unfavorable place with our early impressions of this game, you know? And so, um, we're going to be comparing it to other things that we haven't enjoyed quite as much just naturally, but, um, 
But I, I have a suspicion that maybe that might not be the only way that we yeah. kind of are comparing them going forward. There's a lot of lenses to look at this through. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go ahead and get into part three, which is the dungeon map where we talk about this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. This week's dungeon is the Temple of Wind. And I'm going to start this section off with a bit of a truth bomb for both of y'all. You ready for this? Of the two Temples of Wind that we've played so far, this one is by far superior. Um, <laughs> it is way better than Wind Waker's uh, Temple of Wind. Um, I'm just going to say that right off the bat. A million percent. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I know that's a low bar, but I know that doesn't sound like much of a compliment at all. But I really do. Um, I, I need to say that I really enjoyed this dungeon and I have found the both of the dungeons that we've played so far to be a high point of my experience with this game um maybe actually i'll say yeah the high point i think that um i think that if this if this game hi calcifer hello my cat is like lunging for linden's lap right now matt i made a kitty friend oh we love kitty friends yeah um i think if this game has a high point then it is the dungeons um both last week's and this week's i actually was pretty impressed by and felt that they were solid dungeons with a good amount of length a good amount of complexity um and a fun amount of that element of like education throughout the dungeon that we've kind of talked about uh in in past seasons um you know where it's kind of teaching you things as you go through it um so, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, that's just some general thoughts right off the top of the old noggin. How about you, Max? What do you think about the Temple of Wind? Yeah, I, I tend to agree that the dungeons are a high point of this game. Um, they, they feel uh, surprisingly so um, in the way that the rest of the game feels like it's trying to appeal to new audiences and maybe younger audiences and people who are like not familiar with Zelda problem solving and stuff. Um, and then they throw these dungeons at you, which are actually hard. Like they're relatively hard by the series average, especially harder than the wind waker dungeons, which were far easier than these are. Um, and uh, I find them very confusing to navigate, which is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they, they, they do this thing where they are linear, at least these two so far. Um, you don't really, you're not making choices about which direction to go first, but they are complex enough in their layout and they interweave through like different floors and back and forth enough that it feels, um, it, it doesn't feel linear at all. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of stuff for like you double back and like you open a door now to, to allow yourself to have a permanent path between these two areas where so you used to have to go in this long wind roundabout way and now you have an easy path through um so more of the dungeon it feels like the dungeon really opens up as you go through it uh and both the dungeons in this game have that that element yeah um i do think there's an interesting point in what you're saying about the layout of the dungeon um i think that Top-down dungeons specifically tend to, at least the the most successful ones to me, tend to have a sense of flow and intentionality to the layout, right? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, This dungeon specifically felt a bit more uh, random in its layout and its map. 
Yeah. Uh, then, you know, then some really successful past top down Zelda dungeons that I can think of. And it doesn't, it, it's not the kind of thing that really takes away from the fun factor for me much. Um, I really wouldn't put this as like a big strike against it, but it is worth mentioning because it, it does, it does feel a little bit less uh, harmonious from a layout perspective um, than I think some of the really great top down Zelda dungeons have done. I I totally agree. Uh, it this is another place where it kind of feels like, like you know maybe these dungeons are all built by someone who's never built a dungeon before, and the people who've built dungeons before were too busy to give them advice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it, it, someone was really into it when they built these, but they there's some like they're not thematically very like coherent. Mm-hmm. Oh. Sorry, man. <laughs> cat just tried to walk all over the. Uh, laptop um yeah we're familiar yeah but but it's like even though that is the case and i do agree with that statement i think that um it can't be denied that the puzzles that are present here are are well designed and they do carry the dungeon fairly well um and i think that that like if you're gonna have one or the other then that's what you need to have yeah right i'd rather have like ambitious dungeons that are a little rough um and like I occasionally get stuck on these dungeons. Like there's a puzzle where it's like, oh, they didn't really give me a very good training for this puzzle yeah. or like something's just off screen. So I'm not seeing it. Mm-hmm. And like I run into those things in the dungeons in this game a little bit. Um, I, I was running into the off screen problem quite a bit during this section of the game. I didn't really run into it too much in the last and in, in the first section. But this one, for some reason, I kept forgetting that like the boomerang could go partially off screen and like it felt like it was trying to get me to use that mechanic but i was just having a hard time with it for some reason so uh, yeah it was it was kind of i had that problem more this week than last i guess i'll say if that makes any sense uh, there, so there were one or two things that I felt like could have been taught just a little bit better in this dungeon. Um, it took me a minute to even realize that I was able to push and pull the statues that blow wind. Um, mm. That that was not something that was immediately apparent to me. Um, and I, I'm curious if anyone else got stuck on that at all. Uh, I did not personally. Okay. I, I, yeah, I, don't, yeah, I, don't I got that I one pretty quickly. I wish I'd taken better notes because I don't remember the places where I felt there were rough edges uh, and I don't have them in my notes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think there's, there's a certain disorientation I get in these dungeons. That's a bad thing. Um, like I have a hard time keeping track of like how the areas I'm in are related to other areas I've been previously. And like, yeah, I have a hard time keeping a mental map in my head of the dungeons in this game because they do this thing where like, the circuitous route you take through the dungeon is like going up and down levels a lot and like crisscrossing itself a lot. Um, Well, they don't, they don't feel like they have um, presence as a physical space. Right. Very gamey. Yeah. You might say, Uh, is that what you mean? Yeah, it is. I mean like some, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes these games can do really well laid out dungeons uh, that feel natural and you can feel your way around them pretty well because they subscribe to to like a rough version of 
like what a space would actually feel like, you know, like there can be there's whether it be symmetry or, um, you know, the way that one room might flow to another room, uh, you know, uh, like sometimes it just feels a lot more natural than this. And um, and yeah, I do think that that's kind of a, a knock against this just a little bit. Um I don't know. I, I'm curious to see how this unfolds as we go further into the game, because again, this is kind of like an early effort and, um, you know, that has to be brought up, but I will say that the fire temple also had this going on. Yeah. I don't, I I don't remember if all the dungeons are like this or if it's just these first two, but, um, it's definitely the shared feeling I got from the first two. What about you, Matt? How, How are you feeling about the temple of wind? Yeah, I, I similarly liked it. I liked it more than the Fire Temple. I liked it more than any, uh, not any. I liked it more than the Wind Temple and um, Wind Waker. I, I, I think it was. I think it was good. Um, I, I actually have an interesting question. Do you think that these temples, at least so far, are better or worse or? pretty on par with a link between worlds and and i ask this because this has they feel like they have some similar um weak points specifically in length and lack of mid uh mid dungeon boss um obviously they do have the benefit of the uh, item being uh, gotten within the dungeon but um what, what are your thoughts on that Lyndon? like because I'm I'm kind of back and forth, I guess. As I I that. so far am preferring these to a link between worlds dungeons. I think that a lot of it is just yes, they have an item and that opens up a back half of the dungeon once you get it. Um, they, like it's just really tough to discount that as and, and what it really brings to the table. But on top of that, I really do feel like some of the puzzles that are presented here are just a bit more clever um than some of the stuff we see in a link between worlds um i'm thinking about the one specifically where you had to push the block over like there's three air spouts right and you have to yeah. block one of the air spouts so that you can land on top of a block and then walk over to another path right um yep. that that one i thought was a was a pretty nice puzzle um let's see there was there's some really great use of the map annotation to solve puzzles in this dungeon that lower room where you have to check the map and then dig up the correct spouts and the correct spots to open up some doors like i think that that's a that's a fun execution on the main sort of premise of this game um this dungeon has one of my favorite things that zelda games ever do which is long lines of bomb flowers that you have to ignite <laughs> with a single bomb flower i love um, that puzzle i love oh, that puzzle. moments in the ocarina of time the first time playing that game were so cool yeah that always it always feels fun and so you look it's not like the, it's not the most intelligent kind of dungeon design in the world but it's it's great you know it's 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 a jolly good time. Um, yeah, I, I think so far. Look, am I going to say that either of these dungeons were ones that I enjoyed more than Desert Palace in Link Between Worlds? No, but also these are two early dungeons. Like, I think one of the things For that's sure. really endear the, one of the things that's endearing me so much to dungeons and Phantom Hourglass so far is that these first two have been both been more complex and involved than what I typically associate with being early game dungeons. Um, and I'll take those where I can get them, you know? Hmm. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I, th- I think these do a good job of making you think your way through the puzzles. You you don't just go in and breeze your way through it. Um, it's definitely nowhere near as easy as like even the Deku tree, right? Like I think that um, they they do a good job of of uh, puzzle mechanics specifically. Um, I think combat is lacking overall, but with how much we're not super enjoying combat, that might be a good thing right now. So, um, I guess we'll just see where that nets out as we continue on. But I, I think I agree with your point overall, Lyndon. Max, uh, do you feel like we're off base here? I mean, do you think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know mm. you you were not even as positive on A Link Between Worlds as Dungeons as Matt and I were at some points. So maybe this isn't even the question for you. But yeah, I, it was a mixed bag for me with Link Between Worlds Dungeons compared to YouTube because there were some things that bothered you two that didn't bother me as much and vice versa. Um, but uh, I mean, the the thing that I think Phantom Hourglass Dungeons so far have above link between worlds is that they they've got the the progression of mechanical kind of difficulty where you you know you go in you're introduced to basic versions of puzzles you get an item and then the item unlocks is used to like throw harder versions of those puzzles at you Uh, but it also recontextualizes past areas you've been in phantom hourglass has that uh and link between worlds does not just doesn't give you items in the middle yeah uh, and I, I, that's a really big deal for me in Zelda Dungeons. Like, that's a really important thing for me. So I like that a lot in this over ALBW. Uh, but overall, I like ALBW's dungeons better. Because they're more aesthetically interesting. And that's pretty much the long and short of it. I think they have better music. I think they're they're taking place in a game that looks better overall. Uh, the environments are more varied than these two are. Because these two dungeons feel almost identical to each other. They have the same music, the same general architecture. Yeah. Uh, they don't really have a strong identity. Uh, and I think ALBW's dungeons all have very strong identities in comparison. But Max, one has fire in it and one doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I should be fair a little bit, which is that we're comparing the first two dungeons of Phantom Hourglass to the whole catalog of dungeons in Link Between Worlds. And maybe the, like yeah. the, the first two dungeons in the LBW are the weakest ones, too. Uh, um, yeah. 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 They, they were fine. Eastern <laughs> Palace and Tower of Hera. I think, uh, just put it against those two, Fire Temple and Wind Temple in Phantom Hourglass are better than Eastern Palace and Tower of Hera in Link Between Worlds. I, I yes, totally. Agree. I feel like that's I feel like that's a pretty easy call. So yeah, I uh, I still fall more towards ALBWs in that case, but okay, I think right. it's a closer call for sure. All right, fair enough. We'll 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 keep we'll keep track of this situation as we go forward. Sorry. Um. So uh, let's talk about our dungeon item, which is a thing that we have not been able to do in a top-down Zelda game uh, for a little <laughs> while. We got the boomerang last week, but before that, it was the wasteland of a link between worlds, right? Where we had nothing to speak of in that category. Um, in this dungeon, we get one of the all-time great Zelda items, which is the bombs. Um, no more having to pick up bomb flowers off the ground. I will say I'm always split on whether or not like whenever bombs are awarded to you in this way at like in a chest in a dungeon as a main item, it's a fun moment, but also other games just kind of give them to you willy nilly sometimes. And 
I sort of always tend to think that that's just a better way for you to receive bombs, you know, Um, especially like so this game has several areas early on where you see cracked walls and stuff that, you know, you just have to go back to later with the bombs. And I always hate that, you know, Um, so the theme of this game is writing down information for later. That is true. That is true. I don't know that I I don't know that I've been uh, taking account of all of those areas as diligently as I should be. So you need to draw a little bomb and everyone. I need to be better about that. You're um, an artist. Regardless, the <laughs> or something. Regardless, <laughs> the the bombs are always a fun item to get. And um, that being said, you do get them pretty late in this dungeon. Um, I, there's one or two puzzles that you need to solve with them after you get them. Um, and aside from that, they're not really much of a huge concern. I I feel like a full three quarters of the dungeon happens before you get these. Yeah. The bombs. It's been a while since they've felt interesting to me in most Zelda games, uh, because they're so old hat. Like every Zelda game has them. They're the same in every Zelda game, almost. Um, I do think they work well in this game because of the the precision that the stylus controls let you throw them with. Like, I think that's cool. Yeah. Um, like they're a little bit more flexible to use than they are in most Zeldas. Um, but at the end of the day, like I'm still doing the stuff that I have been doing for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that there's a very precise tuning of the blast radius on these things, which is great because again, it's really tough to place one of these and then GTFO quick enough to <laughs> not get blown up by the, the blast radius of the thing. Right. Um, just because again, the stylus controls, it's like that you just don't have that immediate precision and speed of movement, you know? Um, so that's good. I, I don't know. I, I definitely agree with you, Max. I think it's very nice that you can be as precise with them as, uh, as this game allows you to be. Um, because in a lot of top down Zelda games, it's a little bit of a, not necessarily a guessing game, right? But it is just kind of like look general direction, throw bomb, bomb's yeah. gonna land kind of close to where it wants to be. You kind of you you end up with this thing where like, oh, you need to stand three squares away from the spot you want to put the bomb in, and then throw the bomb, and it will land three squares away every time. Yeah, but like there's no flexibility. Um, I, I don't know if it's literally three squares, but that's basically how I would approach it, in like Link to the Past or Link's Awakening. Yeah, um, uh, but I, I would say this is definitely another. Uh, another item on the list of uh, on the growing list of key items that gain fun and interesting extra functionality because the stylus controls are a thing that's happening like the the boomerang has extra things that it does in this game that are fun because the stylus is the way that you're controlling them and the bombs similarly have got some you know extra functionality and extra behaviors associated with them because you're using this control input and i think that that you know just in the for the sake of being as objective as possible i think we got to bring those up wherever we can yeah um yeah i i I think that it's uh it's a point in stylus controls favor how about you matt yeah stylus controls definitely add some things um i think it's it's nowhere near as interesting as you know remote bombs in breath of the wild but you know i think that's a slightly unfair comparison maybe um i i don't know man i like so much of this game is coming off to me as just like as fine like it it has yet to make me feel anything other than oh that was kind of neat 
and um and I am just not meshing with the the touch controls with the stylus at all. And I I wish that I was because I can see why some people might really like it. And I just don't. And so I, I don't know. I think that's that's really skewing my opinion here because it should be interesting that, you know, you have much finer control over um over the bombs. I think the the most interesting thing that the touch controls have done is um the is the boomerang and like that even that was just kind of like oh that's neat. Um it's it's kind of like the the beetle in Skyward Sword and that's yeah. about as far as I got with it, right? So I don't know, I'm just having a hard time being enthusiastic, I guess, about um a lot of the decisions that this game is is making and the the control scheme yeah. that it's utilizing. Well, and part of your reaction there isn't even about the touchscreen controls, right? It's that the game is kind of like the last top-down Zelda game that released before this was Minish Cap. And man, it's night and day quality levels between Minish Cap and this game. Like For Minish sure. Cap fired on all cylinders. It was great along every axis, had interesting items, beautiful, like this, this was one of the games where I felt mad at the time that they abandoned 2D and went to 3D here. So I felt like the game really suffered for it. Uh, and now with the benefit of, you know, a couple extra decades, I'm like, yeah, it suffered in other ways that were unrelated to being 3D. But <laughs> yeah, this is this is a, a bit far afield from the dungeon map, but it is something that I've been thinking of. So I want to speak to it. I think that there's an unfortunate thing that happened here where because the DS was capable of approximating 3D graphics, there was a mandate that this game had to do that. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I mean, this is something that has that was a problem from the inception of 3D gaming, right, where even like even on the N64, you know, um, it's not that it necessarily like uh, most of those games don't look timeless the same way that an SNES game mm-hmm. might or even the way that a Game Boy Advance game might. Right. Um, but because that was the technology of the time and it was still being developed, like there's a push to where you have to do this and do the best that you can with it, even though it even though like on balance, there might be prettier ways to accomplish this or more aesthetically pleasing ways to accomplish this um there was definitely a popular viewpoint that not being that being 2d was worse graphics um at that time period like if you look up like a review of castlevania symphony of the night from i don't know whatever year that was which was admittedly years before this um but you know there were reviews that dinged that game as having bad graphics because it was 2d even though it is famously one of the most gorgeous 2d games that has ever been made. Uh, and that viewpoint definitely persisted up mm. through uh, even as late as 2007 here. Um, so you're not wrong. Um, well, and, I mean, and that is it, so unfortunate because I, I totally agree, Lyndon, like there are, there are so many games that are so much more, timeless and and beautiful and wonderful um from a just a visual perspective than this hot dumpster fire <laughs> that is the approximation of wind waker graphics yeah well and i think it's telling now that like um in the modern age uh you know uh 2d graphics are one of the one of the spaces that like 
artistic, like heavily artistic people go to have a fun, creative outlet in, in, especially in the indie game space. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. now it's just kind of a, it's kind of taken for granted that it's like, you know, if you have a, if you have an uber distinctive artistic vision, then, you know, nine times out of 10, you're taking it 2d on, you know, at, uh, in an indie release. Um, and it's just like, and people love that. Like, there's a reason that people do that. It's like, it's not just cause it looks great. Like that stuff sells, like people like that, you know? So anyway, just a, just a fun little rabbit trail uh-huh. there. One um, more note on the items here. Getting, getting your second major item is when you start to realize that it's awful that there's only one item slot in this game. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not loving that. It doesn't make sense at all. They could have easily put two, but like, I, I don't know what, I don't know what their technical limitations stuff are. Maybe it yeah. was hard for some reason, but <laughs> it seems like there could have easily been a second item slot there. Yeah. Um, to you the know, point or- where I think it must have been an intentional choice to have only one. Well, or even uh, even hot assign items to whatever buttons you're not using here, right? Like, because you're uh, you're not using A, B, X, and Y buttons. You know, um, I guess that might be a little tough to hit those while you're also holding the stylus. Uh, yeah, I think they had a specific goal to not use any face buttons, um, which I, th- I I know you two last episode talked about how you think this game would have been better if it had movement controls on the d-pad and stylus for everything else and to a certain extent i agree but i think that the the ergonomics of that are so awful that they didn't really have a choice but to make it all touchscreen because like holding holding a ds and with one hand to the point where you can use the buttons while your other hand is free to hold the stylus is just very bad for people's wrists sure <laughs> uh and I don't know if that's why Nintendo didn't do it, but to my eyes, like that's why I would feel if I were making this game, I'd feel like I had to do all styles controls. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, real quick before we get into our discussion about the boss, Matt, uh, last week we talked a lot about ways in which we thought the boss key mechanic would might evolve and become cumbersome and annoying. Um, I just want to touch on this real quick and say that in the uh, actual opposite of that, it became weirdly more simplified from what it was last week. What do you mean? Because I, well, I was going to have the opposite opinion. Really? I mean, I feel like it took two seconds. Like you get it and then you move it a screen over and then you just dump it in some wind and then it's in the key. You know, but you would you also have to drop the key, blow up the uh, boxes that are there and then throw it in the wind. So I, mean, I guess you know, like, like felt- last week, last week you just carried it. And so this week they introduced a carry, drop, use item, carry again, throw into a thing, and then carry again and throw into the lock. So it actually turned into like kind of a three-parter. I guess that's fair. It felt felt perfunctory at best. Um, Right. Which 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 I think was my... Right. Like I think that was my whole point last week was like, this doesn't add anything. Like why have it? It, it doesn't make any sense to have this here because the, at, at best, all you're doing is carrying it around instead of getting it as a key in your key slot on your, you know, belt. Um, and at worst it becomes a hindrance to the rest of everything else in the game. So like th- there's no winning in this situation. So I just don't understand why, 
<laughs> they made it a carryable object. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess on paper it is just one extra thing to do. Um, that doesn't I, <laughs> necessarily make it good. Well, I mean, games are nothing but a bunch of extra things to do in our lives, right? Uh, <laughs> I do, I do tend to agree with your stance, Matt, that it feels like it's whatever uh, potential there is for this mechanic. It's not being used very well yet. Uh, like when I think about a mechanic like this, I think about the orbs and Eagles Tower and Link's Awakening, where the 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 interest that they had was that they had different movement rules than you, the Avatar, had. You had to like move them around the environment differently than you yourself moved around the environment by throwing them mm-hmm. over pits, or um, you know, you couldn't take them down holes that you could go down. But they're not really doing anything like that yet. And then another thing that comes to mind is like, oh, maybe there's like gameplay around certain enemies try to take the item from you. Um, but that doesn't happen. Uh, so I don't really know where they're going with it. Thank you, Max. Like, it always makes me feel good when you agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy y'all can have this moment together. This is great for you. Um, all right. Dumb boss key mechanics aside, let's get into our conversation about the final boss of this dungeon. Uh, what What's the name of this guy again, Matt? Cycloc. Like Cyclops, but with a C-Y-C-L-O-K. Okay. Um, weird name for what is, I thought, to be an actual pretty fun boss. Um, this was, a this was to me, a pretty fun take on the whole stun a boss with a bomb and then do damage. Um the uh, the added complexity of having to throw the bomb into cyclones um, and pick the perfect uh, time so that the bomb is rising up and hitting the boss as it's directly above a cyclone was really fun to me. Um, and in addition to that, uh, the fact that it took two or three, no, three or four damage phases um, in order to clear this thing and there was an added bit of complexity as you got towards the end of the damage scale, right? Um, I always appreciate that where the boss starts throwing more cyclones. Um, one of the things that we said that we disliked about a lot of the bosses in Link Between Worlds dungeons was that it felt like we were clearing them too quick and uh, there was just not necessarily as much mechanical variation throughout the fight as we really would have liked. Um, And I I feel like we had that here. And we also had an arena that I thought was really stinking cool. Actually, this, uh, this kind of pillared Coliseum on top of the temple, which you could actually see from uh, the sea. Now that I think about it, um, which I always appreciate that. I like when dungeons have landmarks that you visit while in the dungeon that can be seen from outside the dungeon. There's like a, a, a cool connection there, a, a bit of world building that I always really appreciate. So um, the venue for this fight, I also thought was really great, but I'm curious to hear yours and Max's uh, takes on it. I'm going to pass it to Max first. Why? Thank you. Uh, I think this is a very successful boss. I think it's super cool. Uh, my favorite thing about it is the fact that they totally changed the camera angle. Uh, and the gameplay still works. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty like that's something that is is actually made possible because this is a 3D game. You couldn't do this in 2D, uh, not without like dramatic amount of effort, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 3D, they were able to just move the camera down and it all still worked because they did a good job designing the arena um, so that you could see everything you needed to even from this camera angle. Um, it feels quite natural. There's a thing that happens in certain games where the 
the game designers, they almost direct the camera like a movie director does, where they, they put it at different locations, different distances, different angles um, in order to create specific moods or pacing or moments mm-hmm. um, like near Automata, which I, I don't think either of you have played. We have not, but it's a great game and they do that constantly in that game. Um, anyway, so this is like one of the only times I could think of Zelda game ever doing this. Uh, it makes me think of the fact that the director of this game, Daiki Iwamoto, he started off on Zelda as the working on the cinematics for Ocarina of Time. That was his like start in his career was as a cinematics director. Um, I wonder if that was related here. Uh, so that's obviously I'm talking a lot about the camera angle. <laughs> that's cool. The actual boss mechanics, I think, are successful in basically the same way that you you described in London. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I, so to that point, I did think it was actually really fun how the boss, so, uh, the action is split between the lower and upper screens. Oh yeah. Right. Um, which was not something that was done in the boss in the last temple. Um, and actually is kind of a, kind of an interesting thing for them to do because what that, what that does is it removes your map screen. It removes your ability to access that. Not that you need it. You don't need to be doing that in the boss arena. Right. But it is still kind of like it it is still a moment that's overwrite uh, that's overriding a main mechanic of the game and a main presentation point of the game. Yeah. I love it when games basically break their own rules um, in their UI or their presentation of their controls in order to have dramatic effect. Um, Like Undertale does that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. and that that's I forgot about that, but you're right to call that out. That's a super cool part about this fight. Um, how about you, Matt? What were you what were you thinking about this one? Yeah, I thought the, the boss fight was really, really good. I thought it was, like you said, Lyndon, probably the most unique way that we've ever used bombs to stun an enemy. Most of the time you're using a bomb to stun an enemy, it's either getting it to swallow the bomb or um, you're getting it to, you're like throwing it at an armored piece of its body to, to blow off that armor. But um, using it in this way to uh, to shoot it upwards in the air and just get like the proximity explosion, like a, like an anti-aircraft gun basically um, was really cool. Um, and uh, your point is well taken about the, you know, we were clearing bosses in a link between worlds way too quickly. Um, we both talked about that quite a few times in that game. Um, I found myself on my like fourth or fifth. It's probably, it's probably more like fifth or sixth. Uh, time to stun this guy and slash away at him. I was like, am I doing this wrong maybe because it's just taking so long? Um, and then I think the next time after that, he he finally died. So um, that was probably just me being impatient and also used to clearing bosses super quickly. So that was probably more of a me issue. Um, yeah, I, I think you guys covered most of the main points, especially the one about the, the camera angle, which I was going to touch on as well. But yeah, I, I think it's everything you guys said. I agree with. Awesome. Well, do either of you have anything else you want to say about this dungeon before we blow out of part three and talk about some other stuff? Uh, nope. I'm good. Uh, I am good as well. Beautiful. Well, with that being said, there's my segue. Let's get on to part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this week. 
Uh, I'm going to go first and just say that I don't even know if this counts as a bloopy trail, but I did the whole canon. I, we all did the the canon thing where you go to the canon island and you get the canon for your boat. Is that optional? I'm not sure if you can. No, you have to do it in order to clear the rocks that lead to the northwestern sea. All right. Well, never mind. That's not a bloopy trail then. I don't look. I'm going to be real. I don't know that I honestly can give you a bloopy trail. Um for this week, I, I haven't really found anything so far that even qualifies as a side quest. I think uh, collecting the different gems is maybe something the power, wisdom, and courage ones, um, mm-hmm. try, you know, trying to find those. But uh, but yeah, there, there's really nothing here so far. And I think the absence of something clear and defined to put in this section is a little concerning to me. Um, I feel like in the second week of this game, we should start uh, seeing something item trading or character side quests or something, some, some place to explore something off the beaten path. Um, uh, I have gotten some sea charts and treasure charts, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's neat. I'm excited about what those might get me later, but I don't have the the grapple right now. Like we can't get anything off the seafloor. So, um, you know, that's kind of a, a non-issue at this point. Uh, how about you, Matt? I mean, did you find anything more than I did? No, I'm exactly the same way. I I, I know that there is, I have heard mention of fishing mechanics. And on the island, one of the islands, I read a sign that said something about a mermaid to the north. So um, I imagine that that's going to kick off some Bloopy Trail-ish stuff. So I think... Um, assuming next week's chunk of game isn't another, you know, two and a half, three hour play session, I may start trying to find some of that stuff. But I have not found anything that could be a bloopy trail outside of the spirit gems. OK, cool. Glad I'm not the only one. How about you, Max? Did you have more luck casting out for side quests than we did? I, I did, but uh, because I was very tantalized by the idea of hidden islands that weren't on my map. OK. And when you first arrive at the Wind Temple Islands... I think the you can find like a journal of the explorer guy. Yeah. And he mentions like the mermaid island or whatever. So I th- uh, this was, you know, a month and a half ago before Tears of the Kingdom came out that I did this. But I, I think I immediately left this island and went to try to find that. And I don't remember what I found. There. <laughs> um, uh, but I remember I did it. Um, it is an interesting hint. I mean, um, I I had the desire to maybe go try and find something, uh, you know, whenever that that little text bubble dropped and then uh, immediately decided that I wasn't in the mood to just start randomly drawing lines on the ocean mm-hmm. to maybe stumble across it. You know, it's possible I'm I did it after the dungeon. I don't remember, but <laughs> I remember strongly being interested in that. And you do get the clue before this dungeon. So, all right. Well, I think we can pretty safely call Blue Trails for this week a wash. Maybe we'll find something more interesting to talk about in part five, which is Z-targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. I have a few potential picks this week. Um, I'm going to send it to Matt first, see who you, who you went with. Um, I'm going to go with Romanos's father, who was 
described himself as an intrepid wayfarer, um, which I thought was a, a very interesting description for himself. Uh, also an explorer of many things, um, abandoner of his family and a uh, general, you know, <laughs> I don't know what else you want to say about him, but there you go. I thought that that was kind of an interesting, uh, what I found most interesting about him was that it, it's a character that is not even on screen who is, extremely crucial and important in uh progressing our quest and you never meet him and you only know about him from his journals where he self-aggrandizes for a while so you know i don't know i thought that was kind of an interesting choice good call matt um how about you max yeah it's tough at this stage in the game because this is the chunk of game where they don't really introduce very many new characters. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's there's several fun side characters that are going to come next week, uh, probably depending on what what you do or don't do. Uh, and I don't think they can be found yet at this point. Um, I'm going to say Lineback because I really like Lineback, and <laughs> I just think he's got a cool theme, and he's this cowardly, like kind of con man. But maybe I mean they totally base him hard. They totally base him on Jack Sparrow, right? Like he's Jack Sparrow. Jack Sparrow was a total coward, like actual. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, you're totally right. Uh, At this point in the game, he hasn't shown a heart of gold at all. So I don't know. Maybe he won't. Uh, But at the very least, he's got some good one-liners, and I appreciate him for not pretending to be anything other than a con man. Lineback is definitely a good one, and uh, this feels like a good time to mention the fact that uh, Lineback, as a main character in this game, is uh, eligible for our once-per-game rule, Matt. For sure, yeah. I haven't um, used him yet. You know, just something. Yeah, no, just something to think about. Um, something <laughs> to keep in the back of the old noggin. Um, yeah, good pick on lineback, Max. I'm going to go with Romanos, uh, who just wants to stay home and eat cheese. <laughs> and I I respect that about him. Um, I, you you stay home and eat your cheese, Romanos. Um, you have some generational trauma that you're dealing with. And if that if that cheese helps you get through your day, then more power to you, buddy. I think that's totally fair. Uh, Look, as long as he's eating the good kinds of cheese um, and being nice to his mother. um, Look, let's be honest that he can't be a deadbeat, but, uh, you know, eat your cheese, bud. Well, that's fair. His his mom has been through some things as well. So they're 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 here for (laughs) each other. Right. Um, Bonded by their (laughs) and abandonment of their father. I like I like to believe. Yeah, his father, her father, their father's. There you go. That's that's it. Okie doke. Um, definitely. Uh, I mean, a few colorful characters to choose from in this game so far. I'm excited to hear that we've got a few more to uh, pick from next week. Um, yeah, that uh, sounds fun. Can't wait till you meet Jolene. Oh, we're going to have ah, to definitely okay. put the Jolene like Dolly Parton song drop in there. Yeah. Yeah, Dolly. Yeah, get get Dolly in that next episode. Um, we'll probably take a we'll probably take a copyright hit for that. On are, the, are we gonna get DMCA'd? Oh man, I don't know. I don't know. It'll we'll be worth see. it. We'll see. It'll it be Dolly, worth Matt. it. Do it for Dolly. All right, uh, let's get into part six then, which is our final thoughts, where we let Matt wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he could think to do. 
So we start our section of game heading on back to the Ocean King's temple to do a little dungeon diving and meet some new enemies, uh, find our uh, title drop uh, of the game item, uh, and just explore a little bit more there. We move on, uh, head west to get into some interesting shenanigans with uh, lost wood mechanics, but on the ocean, uh, which were done, which was done very well and uh, very creatively. Uh moving around to a couple new islands, experiencing some new things, uh, avoiding a straight line A to B for our uh, exploration here, and then uh, heading to the Isle of Gusts for an interesting uh, pre-dungeon lead-up into what was, uh, I think, inarguably a very excellent dungeon, culminating in a really great boss fight that had extremely creative mechanics and uh, was a lot of fun. So I think overall we can call this section of game uh, really good, uh, really fun, despite the fact that we're still struggling quite a lot with uh, the main mechanics of the game itself. So we'll see where it takes us next week. It's so funny, Matt, because I feel like I, I agree with your succinct summation of this week's events, uh, despite the fact that it portrays our experience as being uh, much more positive than I think we have been making it sound like it was in this episode. I, I mean, I, I really I don't know, like there's there's a lot to criticize here and we have been. And I do think, you know, I texted you this um, uh earlier today, Matt, I think that things were meshing a bit more for me this week than they were last week. Like I was starting to see glimmers of things that I was enjoying and starting to see glimmers of potential here and there this week. Um, and, and really did feel that this was a positive section of the game overall. And so I, I don't want our whole discussion to kind of take away from that necessarily. I, I do think that there were, there were pluses to be had. Yeah. I, I, I don't, disagree that there are pluses. And so what what I want to really come across is that as much as I am not enjoying the stylus controls, the way the game, the way the game's movement specifically is set up, the way the movement is tied to the, like all of that, I'm not enjoying that, but I can still objectively look at like the dungeon experience and say, that was a good dungeon the boss fight was that was a good creative boss fight the use of lost wood mechanics on the ocean via the ghost ship that was creative like that was a someone made a really good game design decision that was unique and creative used a tried and true trope of a zelda game in a new way that does not mean that i'm liking this game very much so far like all of those things can be true while it also be true that this the mechanic the main core mechanics of the game are not jiving with me yeah no that's fair i think that that's a that's a very good summation of where we're at just generally and honestly sounds like it's pretty similar for you max right yep okay <laughs> we're uh we're all hoping for things to start looking up sooner rather than later but to be honest it's it's kind of it's it's tough to see how our final thoughts are going to evolve for this game knowing that some of our gripes are with base level mechanics of it i'm really excited for you to find a guest who loves phantom hourglass and can like eloquently articulate why we should all love it too so good luck finding that guest 
Uh, I will begin doing research immediately because that sounds like it would be a fun episode. Um, all right. Well, uh, that, of course, will happen potentially in a future episode. But I think for now, it's probably time to wrap this one up. Matt, I know you're trying to go to bed and um, I am hitting a wall of fatigue after my day of travel. And uh yeah, so I I could use a bed as well. Yep, it's uh, bedtime. To be completely honest, Max. It's bedtime, Max. Seriously, that, this has been so fun, man. I this is uh, I can't overstate enough uh, how much of a treat it's been to be able to have this experience. Um, you know, just uh, after so many episodes recorded remotely, just uh, getting it to getting to do it this way was um, was really wonderful. Yeah, it was awesome to do it here. Uh, and and finally meet you in person. Yeah, after all after all this time, we've actually got some history behind us now. So yeah, this was this was definitely really great, and uh, the start of a what is a very fun week for me. I'm very excited to be um, visiting my dream job in person <laughs> for the first time in two years. So uh, great feelings all around. Um, next week, of course, we will be back to talk about another section of Phantom Hourglass. We'll be joined by the wonder from down under, Cody Davies. Uh, will be coming on the show to talk about episode three. So everyone look forward to that. I feel like, uh, you know, the Australia facts can only get bigger and better from here on out. I don't know how we're going to surpass the Emu Uh, Wars, but uh, that's the challenge to Cody Davies when he's listening to this episode. Surpass the (laughs) Emu Wars if you can. Yeah, I was going to say that the Emu War is was really an outrageous moment on our podcast and and may never be topped. (laughs) So. Uh, but yeah, that is the challenge. Um, but uh, yeah, and then the week after that, uh, we'll be having Max back on the show again to talk about the ghost ship, which was his uh, uh, his actual first pick of episode to do um, this one. He just kind of landed on by virtue of the fact that this is the one we needed to do <laughs> while I was here. So it all just sort of worked out. Oh, uh, man. Uh, but let's get into some outro. Get out of here for the week and we'll. Catch y'all a little bit later. If you enjoyed today's show and you'd like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sacredrealmspod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Phantom Hourglass Chapter 3. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. Phantom Hourglass can be played on the Nintendo 2DS or 3DS. The cartridge will work on both systems. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent, listener-supported podcast, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Business operations are handled by Matt Willoughby. Our music is generously provided by Darknuck and is available to listen to on Spotify. Finally, we'd like to thank Nintendo for continuing to create such exceptional and innovative experiences. 